everyone, and welcome back to your favorite science communication podcast, In the Spotlight. I am your host, Emily Schaefer, and this episode we have got another amazing guest on to share about their scientific research. We've gotten to hear from students and postdocs in a lot of fascinating research areas over the episodes that we've covered so far. But one thing that we've been notably missing are some of our friends that do their science out there in the world through field research. And I don't know about everybody else, but I've always been so intrigued by people that get to do field research as part of their education and go to these really interesting places to tackle some very interesting questions. So speaking to us today about her research work is graduate student Amelia Litz. Amelia is a third-year graduate student in the Plant Biology and Conservation Program at Northwestern University. So welcome, Amelia. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you for coming on. The first question that everyone I interview has to answer is, what inspired you to become a scientist? Sure. So I actually didn't get my... uh start in science per se, but it was in a high school environmental science course. And we were learning about air pollution. And I saw a picture of these kids somewhere on the East Coast protesting um, parents idling in their cars because the air quality was so poor that they couldn't go outside for recess. And from then on, I decided I wanted to be an environmental warrior. And then I moved to Southern California and I started volunteering with a bunch of different environmental organizations. And the one that I kind of settled on and started going to every weekend was one called Tree People. And what we did is we went outside into natural areas and we planted native plants in areas where invasive plants had taken over. And I really wanted to do that kind of work for my job. So I needed to get a degree. So I moved to an area where I could get a degree in botany. I went to Humboldt State University and I took a pollination biology course while I was there. And during that course, we had to do these pollinator observations. And what that consists of is we go out to a specific flower that we're interested in. And we were instructed to stare at a patch of flowers for 10 minute intervals and then go to a different patch of flowers to do the same thing. And the entire time, I was just blown away by the idea that if I went into research, staring at flowers for part of my day could be my job. Um, So I was just totally sold on science and research from that point on. That's a really interesting hook, that staring at flowers was what did it for you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was just like, oh my gosh, how does everyone not want this job? So tell us a little bit more about your specific research area then. Does flowers come into play still or something different? (laughs) Actually, yeah. So now I find myself staring at um, patches of dirt outside, which is like far from flowers. But um, I study this type of bee that nests underground. And due to their like specific nesting habitats, they tend to nest in areas without a lot of flowers. So I don't actually stare at flowers anymore. I look for bees coming out of um, bare patches of soil. Okay, so (laughs) anti-flowers. 
We've moved past flowers. <laughs> yeah, I got. I, I started getting like way more interested in the actual bee side of pollination because you know you have the flower side where it needs bees to pollinate flower, and then you have the bee side where it's out in the world just trying to find pollen. And what specifically are the questions that you're trying to answer with your research? Sure. So for these ground nesting bees, what I'm specifically interested in is what makes them come out of the ground in the spring. So they spend the majority of their lives in these nest cells underground. And I'm really interested in like how they know it's spring and what climate variables are responsible for kind of letting them know when it's time to come out of the ground. Okay. And do we know a lot about these bees already? Or is this like a big unknown that we've never explored before? Yeah, so surprisingly, we don't know that much about ground nesting bees. Um, And that's surprising because there's like 20,000 bee species out there. And anywhere from 65 to 80% of them live underground. And it's really hard to fine tune that just because we know so little about ground nesting bees. We know a little bit about what kind of habitat ground nesting bees like, like where they like to nest, but we don't know much about what's going on underground as far as what they're responding to in the environment that translates to like their underground habitat. And what we do know about them is from the information that we've collected from similar species that like nest above ground. So we know a lot about these kind of like solitary nesting bees, bees that don't live in colonies. But what we do know about them is is how they operate and respond to environmental variables above ground, not below ground. Tell me a little bit more about what we do know about these bees. Sure. So they're a lot different from what most people would typically think of a bee. So typically people think that bees live in colonies and make honey and have this like elaborate social network. But the bees that I study and what 90% of bee species do is they actually live a solitary life cycle. And this solitary life cycle just means that there's no colony or social structure. They don't make honey. So what do they do? A female will emerge from the soil in the spring or the summer. And after she emerges, she'll pretty much immediately be mated because the males will emerge first. And after that, she spends all of six to eight weeks, depending on the species, they're actually not out for very long, gathering provisions. And what a provision is, is it's just a kind of ball of pollen and nectar that they put in what is called a nest cell. And you can imagine a nest cell as a gelatin pill capsule. Um, And at the bottom of the gelatin pill capsule, filling up about a quarter of it, is this ball of pollen and nectar. And then the egg is laid on top of the ball of pollen and nectar. And then the female will close this nest cell up and she'll go off and make a bunch of other nest cells um, and she'll die before any of um, her progeny or her children emerge. So the bees that you're describing then are completely different from the stereotypical bees that I think of when I think of bees because they don't have any socialness. Is that right? Yeah, that's totally right. They lack any kind of social structure. So there's no queen bee, there's no worker bees, there's no drones, and they don't make honey, and they don't live in some big colony that they need to defend. (laughs) That's so interesting, because you've literally listed 
every single thing that I would use to describe bees. And yet these are the majority of the bees that are out there in the world. Yeah. And, and you're not alone in thinking that. I remember during my pollination biology course, um, when I was introduced to bee diversity, I totally went into the course thinking we were going to learn about honeybees and butterflies. What do you think that the average person off the street would understand or could tell you about your research? What are some common misconceptions about what they would tell you? Yeah, I think you touched on a lot of them. Um, most people think that bees live in colonies and they all make honey. So typically when like I meet someone at an outreach event or if I'm casually com- talking to someone about about what I do, they immediately bring up some experience that they've had with like beekeeping or some recipe that they use honey in. And, and it's really hard to kind of move past that because a lot of people, if I don't explain it right, are still very confused what I'm talking about if I'm not talking about a honeybee. Yeah, that's that's really funny. <laughs> and so what do you think is the most interesting about your research area to the rest of us? I think it's just the the sheer diversity of bees. I mean, they come in all different shapes and sizes. Like some of them are like smaller than than your fingernail, your pinky fingernail, and then some of them are huge. I don't know exactly what I would compare them to with the hugeness, but there are some really large bees out there. You might be familiar with like a a carpenter bee. Have you seen one of those? I think so. I think we used to have those like all around my deck in my like childhood house. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They're they're so cool. Uh, but yeah, oh. so so they're pretty big, right? Um, and then some of them, some other bees, you need like a, a dissecting microscope to like even tell that they're a bee. So the size range is incredible. Like there's there's so many different colors. Like they they have like the prettiest colors ever. I think, and I'm a little biased. Um, but just every color of the rainbow, uh, and and they live everywhere, and and just their yeah, the sheer diversity is is I think what what is the most interesting part about my research. I can tell you're in the right research area because you just get so excited about something like bees. It makes me so excited too. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad bees are so cute. <laughs> What motivated you to study this specific type of bee? I was a botany major with a minor in soils, and I was fresh out of my pollination biology course and a research experience for undergraduate summer program. And my last semester in school, I was finishing up all my soils courses, but I was super excited about bees. So I was also excited to link my interest in bees with what I was learning in soils. And so I focused all of my semester projects on ground nesting bees and I ran into like a huge problem because I'd go and sit down on the computer and try and look up everything that I could about ground nesting bees and there just wasn't much out there and I realized the information I was looking for didn't exist and I knew the only way for it to exist was through research. I love that. That's such a good answer. Tell us a little bit more about the field research that you do. Why is it important to answer the questions that you're interested in? Sure. So when you study something in the lab, everything can be so controlled. So you can really get to like the heart of a process. But then typically when you like apply that process to outside, 
there's just so many variables in an environment that sometimes what you find in a lab doesn't hold true to outside because it's just it's just not comparable. So the reason it's important to do it in the field is so we can manipulate these variables in the actual environment that these organisms are in. So that way, say under climate change, when climate variables are altered, we can get a better idea of how those climate variables changing will interact with everything else that you might not have thought of to influence this organism's life. What is the process of field research like? It totally depends on what you're studying. So for me, I had to go out into the field and like my entire first field season was just finding where these bees lived. So I didn't even really collect much data my first year because I was just like out staring at dirt patches trying to find these bees. And after I found them, then I had to design my experiment. So you kind of got to work with what you have. You can't, you know, determine like, oh, this is my lab space and this is how big it's going to be. Like I had to work with how big these nesting sites were. And then in addition to that, like when I am actually applying like my standardized treatments, um, I run into things like, oh, there's a rock here where I'm supposed to put my emergence trap. And there's just like so many little variables that you don't think of. So when you're doing field work, you have to be really good at just kind of going with the flow and figuring out problems as they come, because they always come. That makes sense. <laughs> what sort of experiments are you running in the field and what kind of data are you trying to collect? I'm trying to collect data on the soil moisture and the soil temperature. Um, of these nesting areas. So what I want to know is how rising temperatures and changing precipitation patterns are going to affect the soil temperature and the soil moisture and how that in turn affects the emergence of these bees. Why do changes in the emergence of these bees matter to the bees? Is it changing like their lifespan or any of their outcomes of their lives? Yeah, so the timing of life history events, which is what I'm measuring, is called phenology. And phenology is tied to so many things. So it's tied to how many how many offspring that that bee has that year. It definitely is tied to lifespan. And more and more research is actually pointing towards, you know, if they come out later in the season and there's warmer temperatures later in the season, and that insect is exposed to warmer temperatures its whole life, that the offspring can actually come out smaller. So the timing of when that bee is active has huge impacts on just like basic reproductive efforts. But then in addition, like they're pollinators, they they're part of this like beautiful, famous mutualism. And a lot of them, while they don't specialize on just like one species of flower, they might be specialized for like a group of flowers or a certain type of flower. And if they don't come out when that flower is blooming, they kind of lose out on their food resources for that season, which is which is kind of huge. <laughs> and where do you usually go to perform your field research? My field station is at the Rocky Mountain Biological Laboratory, and that is in a town called Gothic in Colorado. And it 
is a, it's it's weird to call it a town because it's actually just like an abandoned mining town that was taken over by a biological laboratory. So there's only one person that lives there year round. And then every summer, there's a bunch of ecologists that come to do their research. It, it is a very, a very special place. It's a, it's a wonderful place to be because you're just, you, you feel like you're at an ecology conference all summer, just constantly running into like-minded people that want to talk about research. I love that. That's really cool. And now I have to ask you like one of the most important questions here. Why should we care so much about the emergence patterns of all of these different bees? Why does this matter to us as humans? That's a really good question. And I would first say that, you know, we we really, really depend on pollinators for agriculture. And if we wanted to start using these solitary bees for agricultural purposes, knowing what environmental variables trigger their emergence is going to be really important if, you know, our crop is ready to bloom, so we need the bees to be ready to go. So understanding what controls their emergence will help us to link up the pollinators with the flowers. Amelia, I know that we do have honeybees that are contributing to the pollination process, so why do we care specifically about these ground nesting bees if we already have plenty of bees around the world? Sure, so that's a great question. So we do really rely on honeybees because, you know, they're easy to keep and they're mobile. We can take them anywhere, but they're becoming a lot more difficult to manage. You've heard of like colony collapse disorder and bee mites and now murder hornets. And those are all targeting honeybees because, well, they're a huge target because we we domesticated them and we have these huge stocks of honeybees. So they're getting a lot more difficult to manage. And we're probably going to become have to become less reliant on them. And we have all these other amazing pollinators out there that if we figure out enough about their lives, they could be great agricultural pollinators. But we need to find out more about what they need for nesting, what they need for floral resources, um, in order to implement them into commercial agriculture. Are there ever any policies or news events where you hear about things and you're like, oh yeah, that's so related to all of these different ecological systems that I get to study. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, you hear kind of about these like pollinator declines and all these like, oh, we're losing all of our pollinators. And it's really hard to be like, oh, this is the reason. If we just stop doing this one thing, all of our pollinators will be fine. Because it's it's a variety of factors that are weakening bees and making them, you know, less able to reproduce or less able to survive throughout the season. And one thing that really comes to mind is pesticides and insecticides. So we go through this, you know, process of of testing these pesticides against bees and you know, someone can say like, oh, well, this, this pesticide, it didn't, or insecticide, it didn't immediately kill the bee. So, so it's totally fine. We can put it on the plants. But, you know, if there's a bee out there and maybe the insecticide doesn't kill the bee, but maybe it makes it a little disoriented or it's a little bit slower. And then if you couple that with limited floral resources, say because of habitat fragmentation or limited floral resources because of climate change, you know, that bee's not getting enough to eat. It's kind of like, disoriented or something from the pesticide. And then in addition, you know, habitat fragmentation, do they have a place to nest? Are they close enough to their floral resources? So 
that's one thing that I find really interesting in the news is just pesticide and insecticide regulation and the testing process for that. If you had to make a change to the way that we do our pesticide regulation now, what do you think needs to change about what we're currently doing? I think a lot. (laughs) Um, But the biggest thing I think that needs to change is a lot of this testing is done just on honeybees because, you know, they're easy to keep in a lab. They're easy to kind of like manufacture. And what we're not doing is we're not testing these insecticides and these pesticides on solitary nesting peas, which, you know, as we talked about before, have a completely different life cycle and therefore they're differently vulnerable to these insecticides and pesticides. But because testing on them is not required, we, we really don't know how, how these insecticides and pesticides are affecting wild systems. And is this problem of, of proper regulations on pesticides affecting certain bees or certain ecosystems more than others? Yeah, I think in ecosystems that are more fragmented, so, you know, Bees might have been able to access wildflowers before, but now their habitat is closer to an agricultural field rather than some wildflowers. They're going to be forced to go and feed on the crops. If a bee is living somewhere that has a lot of agriculture going on and the landscape is fragmented and they don't have a lot of um, access to wildflowers, um, I think they're definitely more vulnerable. Amelia, if... Myself and everybody listening to this episode were to remember one thing about your work that you talked to us about today, what would you want to spotlight? I would want everyone to take away that, you know, when people think of bees and they think of honeybees, that is not what the typical bee is like. And what I would encourage everyone to do is just Google bee diversity because there are so many amazing, really cool looking bees out there. Yay, that's a fun homework assignment for all of us. <laughs> Google <Yeah>. bee diversity. <laughs> and Amelia, if somebody listening wanted to learn more about the types of things that you talked about today, is there a way that they could do that or maybe contact you? Yeah, they can definitely contact me. Um, and then also, there is the Xerces Society, in case anyone was interested in how to create native pollinator habitat around them, like if they have a backyard. And then also, if you just want to look at amazing, cool pictures of bees, the Native Bee Inventory and Monitoring Lab has these incredible pictures that I would highly recommend to anyone that's even just a little bit curious about what bees look like. So cool. Yeah, and if anyone has any other questions about what I've discussed or if they just want to learn more about bees, um, my email is ameliolitz, so A-M-E-L-I-A-L-I-T-Z, 2023 at u.northwestern.edu. Awesome. Thank you so much again, Amelia, for being on the podcast. It was really awesome to get to hear more about your research. Thank you so much, Emily. It was so fun to talk about it. And thank you to everyone who's listening as well. I'm really, really proud of the episodes that we've been able to put out so far, and we want to continue sharing them with as many people as possible. So to help us with that, please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Those are just little things, but it really does make a difference in getting this podcast out to a wider audience. 
And if you want to connect with us on social media, you can find this podcast on Twitter at Spotlight the Pod. And this podcast was brought to you by Northwestern University's Science Policy Outreach Task Force, or SPOT. And you can learn more about SPOT at our website, spot.northwestern.edu, or on Twitter at SPOTForceNU.